Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. I'm excited to have Brian Palas with me, which I'm trying my best as a white guy from New York to pronounce appropriately. So I probably butchered it, but you know, bear with me here. Um, you did great. <laughs> Brian and I met through family office connections. I think we were both at a virtual conference during COVID and I'm a big believer in follow-up. And so we did a follow-up call. I thought what he was doing is fascinating and I've, I've kept up with his efforts over the past really six plus months. And I'm very focused on how you can create networks and communities to benefit everybody you know, on those platforms, especially within the alternatives investment space. So this is perfect. And actually, I, I meant to tell you before, but I just joined YPO. I know you guys have a strategic relationship, so I want to get into that a little bit as well. But, Congratulations. Well, thank you. Welcome um, in. I think they were desperate for members with COVID. So I kind of snuck my way in the back door. Maybe let's start with just kind of your background, where you grew up, school, et cetera, and then we can take it from there. Sure. So I took my MBA at uh, Columbia Business School. But despite my MBA was in New York, I was born and raised in Milan. I took in Milan my undergrad and master degree, both with honors and I also worked in Milan for Boston Consulting Group for a few years before going for my MBA. And you have a diverse background. You've, you've done venture, private equity, some investment banking. Maybe yeah, talk a little I, bit about the, that journey. Yeah, I was keeping it short. But yeah, my first years working, I was actually during the day working uh, for a company that was organizing uh, events and concerts globally and during the night for like the largest stand-up comedy show in Italy. We had a few million people watching uh, every week. It was a primetime show, sort of the David Letterman of Italy. After that, I, I started working with Boston Consulting Group, uh, been with them for a few years. And then from there, I did some investment banking, some venture capital, some private equity during my MBA at 
at Columbia. I started my own company, Opportunity Network. So let's get into that. What was what was the motivation there? What was the catalyst that actually start this while you're in the middle of business school? Sure. So I come from a family business and I've always seen my father being very traditional and the way he runs his business, very successful, uh, but very traditional. So with, uh, with a business that was all in all quite sizable, I, I always found his resistance in, in kind of opening up and, and trying to find new ways to, to find clients, suppliers, partners. And, and so I always was thinking, okay, so he has an incredible network. He knows an amazing amount of people and, and he's really trusted in his community. But I'm sure that there is plenty of people that doesn't know him. And so I always thought there must be a better way for him to, to know the industry and get known by the industry on, on a global level on what he was doing. And, and I thought it is so inefficient for people that you know are running a business or are trying to make investments or trying to grow their, their funds and so on to, to do that in isolation, to do that only relying on their own individual network. And so when I was at Columbia, I, I joined this club, the, the family business club. So all the kind of next generation of sizable family businesses that have been sent to Columbia Business School to learn how the world spins around before they go back and, and run their own businesses. And, you know, speaking with, with my peers, I was like, okay, we're all feeling the same. And, and it looks like maybe we could even do stuff like with one another, but no one really feels like talking a lot about our own family businesses or family offices. Because, you know, it's it's kind of private and it's weird and you, you don't want to to be the one that is like talking about doing business together because it's kind of a, a dirty thing. And, and at the end of the day, I thought maybe there is a better way and there must be a better way. So just within the Columbia Business School, Family Business Club, all these next generation family businesses and family office, we, we started what at the time was a newsletter. So anyone that was interested in, in a specific deal would just send me in like two, three lines, what they were trying to accomplish in an anonymous way. I would make sure it's anonymous, just compile them all and, and send them out to the community of like 70, 80 next generations. And if someone was interested in number one, three, seven, whatever, I would just put them in touch. So very, very basic and obvious uh, matchmaking that I'm sure a lot of communities try. What really made the difference is the fact that, you know, we started doing that and it worked out for my family, for a few other uh, people that ended up closing deals together. Uh, but, you know, month one, month two, month three, you, you start seeing more and more coming. Month four, you're done because if you want to do something, you said it. And, you know, if you could find someone in, in the community of 70 people, that, that was that was it. So we thought, okay, this is over. We we just kind of did it and uh, we, we can go back to our student life. But I kept thinking there, there must be a better way. There, there must be a way to scale this. And on the flip side, if you just say, oh, I'm going to add people that I know and trust, you know, the fact that I know them and I trust them doesn't mean other people would know them and trust them. And that's where kind of the, the, the trust chain breaks. Because if you start opening it up, then that, that kind of trust that enabled us to talk anonymously about what we wanted to do and get in touch would break. So I started thinking, okay, I went to Columbia Business School, but I also got accepted at a number of other universities. I could have gone to London Business School. I could have gone to Harvard Business School. I could have gone to Stanford. And if I went to these schools, maybe I would have found the same club and done the same thing. So I, I kind of checked out and many of these schools had the same family business club available. So I contacted the presidents of these clubs and, and started kind of saying, okay, so if we trust the Columbia Business School Family Business Club, why shouldn't we trust the Harvard Business School Family Business Club? Why shouldn't we trust the London Business School Family Business Club? And, and you know, before I know it, I started speaking with these people, adding them to, to the community. And then it's 17 top MBAs, family business clubs. And then it's their alumni. And, you know, I'm, I'm just there 
sitting at business school and, and having like a billion dollar worth of deal flow going through my personal email. And, you know, everyone is happy. Everyone is telling me this is great. But, you know, that that really enabled me to realize that there was something there as a need that went even beyond what I wanted to do for my family, but really, really touched a lot of, you know, decision maker and future decision makers at this family business and family office. And, and we realized, okay, we need a way that is more scalable, a way that is more robust to ensure the quality. And we, we need more members at once. We cannot just grow by 50 at a time. So we, we made this into a company. And instead of just working with a family business club or top MBAs, uh, we started reaching out to some of the top associations worldwide. We started working with YPO and EO and so on, serving their customer base. And then we started working with banks, not with the banks, but with the clients of the banks. So each bank started inviting the wealth management customer they were working with. And we work with UBS and Credit Suisse and the likes or commercial banks. And so uh, we, we work with Adienambro, Citizens, roughly 70 institutions worldwide, each bringing in their clients. And so this is what Opportunity Network is. It's the sum of the best members and best clients of all the top banks and associations worldwide. And so where we are today, seven years into this adventure, um, is basically a network that counts 50,000 among CEOs and family offices. And through the platform, they are doing roughly 410, 420 billion dollars uh, worth of deal flow. And uh, we introduced a couple of decision makers for them to do business together over 100,000 times so far with not a single horror story. So it feels good. It's it's incredible. And and was there was there a moment when you realized, you know, you had that aha moment of, man, this might actually be a real business, a scalable business. Was there a particular story that you could relay about how it triggered you? Well, you, you heard the the whole story, but yeah, the, the real moment where the, the light bulb went up is when it was just Columbia Business School. And uh, I saw two people that were sitting one next to the other, going out for dinner, discussing like what to give to their respective girlfriend and so on. They realized they could do business together and their families ended up closing a $30 million deal that would have not happened if they just kept hanging out without kind of having access to a way uh, for them to kind of discuss what their needs were. And I thought, okay, if this is true in a 70 people community, think of the lost opportunities in what is a much bigger community, which is the business community worldwide. And so the, the real purpose of Opportunity Network, the, the reason why we wake up every morning and, and, and really fight hard to get more CEOs, more organizations into the platform, maintaining that level of quality uh, that so far has been pristine, is, is really to make sure that we create a place where we can really provide equal access to business opportunities worldwide. And, that, and that's part of the you know, social impact that you envision within the platform as well. Could you expound upon that a little bit? It's not just about helping these folks do great deals. Well, helping the folks means helping the economy. My master degree before going um, for my um, MBA at Columbia, it's in economics. And I always wanted to bring an impact to the world. And when, when you really look at what drives an economic growth, it's businesses that are growing and hiring people and, and, and kind of really providing an opportunity for the common folk to be employed, pay for education, healthcare, and so on for, for their families. And you can look at comparables. You can look at Alibaba. They're doing business between China and the rest of the world. And their deal size is, is relatively small. It's wholesale deal size rather than enterprise sales or, you know, M&A or, and, you know, capital raise. And even in a, a $1,000 to $100,000 ticket size, 
even in just China to the rest of the world, Alibaba has such volumes uh, that they created 30 million jobs in, uh, in the 25 years they've been around. How many jobs can we create if we're able to bridge the gap of all the deals between 100,000 and a billion on a global basis? And that's really the impact that we can bring. It's not just helping us CEOs and, and family offices to get to do business together, it's to eliminate from the system the cost of lost opportunity. And the moment we do that, we are generating employment, we're generating economic growth, and we're generating real opportunities. This will first impact the CEOs that are the kind of engine of economic growth, but that it will definitely scale down to like everywhere in the world. And if you think about the world today, now with COVID, companies are starting to operate remotely, but still to find business counterparts, there are very few places and cities that tend to kind of concentrate a lot of the uh, decision-making power and a lot of the influence. And uh, the idea is to create a place where if you're a reliable family office, if you're a reliable CEO, reliable alternate worth that has been verified by a bank, you have the access to get in and you're able to do business with everyone else that is legitimate. So you don't need to be in a specific city to do that. That's wonderful. I, I love that. Now, a lot of people, especially in business school, have ideas, right? Cool things that they want to explore. Very few actually execute on those ideas. Could you maybe relay for the audience, in your opinion, how you can take an idea from inside of your head to onto paper to to, to actually a functioning company? So the best way to bring an idea from paper to real life is never put it on paper. So I, I come from a consulting background. And the consulting approach is great when you're like really working on a large company that is really complex. But when it comes to startup, it's the last approach I would recommend to take. Don't start from a business plan. Don't start from uh, a, a long presentation. Don't start from raising capital. Start kind of from the real need of the customer or what you perceive it to be. And then go speak with who you believe will be your customer and just make it happen. And do it for free in the beginning. Just see if you're able to make a difference for them. And then see if they're willing to pay and and build a company from that, from successful, happy customers that are using your product and really believe in the vision you're trying to create. And only then think about raising capital, only that think about economics, only that think about margin, but really start from client need, really start from building something simple, delivering the value to the customer at a very basic level, even if it is not in a sophisticated or automated or sustainable way, just do it because you will learn what in your approach works and what doesn't, and you get to iterate very fast. The more you have money behind you at the beginning, the more you're like structuring things, uh, the slower you will be in changing and adapting. At the very beginning, you will have to change and adapt a lot to be able to get something that is really what your community will ultimately need and want. So obviously, you, you've scaled tremendously. 50,000 contacts is incredible. And I want to get into what you envision as the future, but I often find that people learn more from mistakes than they do success stories. And I'm sure you had your fair share of missteps or stepping into various potholes as you were growing the company. Could you maybe talk a little bit about some of those mistakes you made early on and hopefully people can kind of learn from those? Yeah, sure. At the end of the day, what we tried to do is kind of crazy. We're trying to convince every reliable CEO on this planet to be in the same network and to to just do business together through that. It's something that has never been done before. And we actually, frankly, had no clue whether that was even possible when we started. Now we know and, you know, we've been really the first one, but 
we kind of feel like pioneers in our field because we're really the first one that achieved a certain amount of scale in, in doing what we do. And we made plenty, plenty, plenty of mistakes. So the, the first thing that we were thinking when we were starting is that there is a trade-off between volumes and quality. And that is a very common misconception in the industry. And, you know, you, you, you think, okay, the more volumes I get, the lower the quality will get. So you have to keep it small. But if you keep it small, you don't have enough deal flow. And, and that's a misconception because it is true in a network that you kind of go and create on your own because the faster you grow, the more your quality will start spurt. But it's not true if instead of like getting in person by person where you can't really control the quality, um, if you really scale up this fast, you work with communities that each one have done kind of their own due diligence and, and kind of make sure that all their members and clients are legitimate. So even if you're growing very fast because you're taking in the entire customer base of Credit Suisse or of UBS, you're actually improving your quality rather than making it worse. And, and that misconception took us a little bit to, to, to get beyond. Then in the very beginning, we thought, okay, maybe uh, we should leave out of commissions. But uh, we realized that the, the regulation around there is very kind of hard to comply with globally. And on the flip side, you don't want to be the one that is trying to get a commission out of these deals, because then in order for you to make revenues, you will be chugging deals down people's throat, regardless of them being good or not. And instead, we realize it's much better for us and for the client to kind of just be a neutral player uh, where we provide a platform and, and people are able to connect with one another and we make sure that they have valuable conversation without taking a commission out of their deals and so on and so forth. Like if, if I were to make a list of all the mistakes we've done, uh, I think that this podcast would be like 15 episodes. <laughs> that, that's That's probably true. And I think this is a cliched question, but I think it's a really good one. You know, if you could go back to yourself seven years ago or six years ago, as you were first starting to get this off the ground, what advice would you give yourself to try to smooth out some of the growth and maybe allow you to scale more efficiently? So the first thing I would tell myself is go for it. You know, it, it was a ballsy move at the time and it was an incredible journey. And the place where we are right now, it's a unique place. Uh, we had some bumps on the road, but by and large, we achieved something that was never achieved before. So yes, I would give myself a bunch of advice like, okay, invest more here and less there, this type of community rather than that, that type of community. Uh, but by and large, I would tell myself, go for it because it's been an incredible journey. I've been amazingly fortunate to work with people that you know are mind-blowing and by and large are still with us. And yes, there are many things we could have done better, but there is nothing I really regret. And how about mentors, teachers, resources along the way? Are there any specific call-outs that you want to make to people that enabled you to achieve all this success? So the, the list would be incredibly long. At the very beginning, uh, in order for me to get feedback from the industry, Columbia Business School has been incredibly instrumental. They have a program called Executive in Residence, and they have a program that is called Entrepreneurs in Residence. So they have like 30, 40 kind of very successful CEOs, former CEOs that you know, students can book time with, and they have like 30, 40 very successful entrepreneurs that, you know, sold their companies and, and went through the journey maybe multiple times that students can book their time with. And I basically booked the time with like all 80 of them and, and just kind of kept bouncing ideas and really kind of picking all their 
thoughts into what today is Opportunity Network. Beyond that, you know, from the very beginning, my accounting professor from Columbia joined our board, uh, giving us a lot of credibility and also making sure we didn't, like, we wouldn't do anything stupid. Uh, we had a lot of investors along the way that really believed in us and invested a lot of capital, but also provided us um, a lot of advice. And a lot of the people that I meant along the way, it's very hard to make a specific name over another. But if I really were to give a shout out, I would, I would give it to our team. Generally, CEOs talk about mentors as kind of these people that are really kind of top of their profession. And they had these like 20 minute conversation within their life that kind of completely changed the way they looked at things. We've been fortunate enough in terms of funding and in terms of what we're doing to be able to, to attract people working in the company, reporting to me and reporting to my reports that are so senior that they could have easily qualified as mentors for me. And having those people every day helping us to shape the company and making it what it is, to me, those are the real mentors I have. And that's something very uncommon, I'd say, in a company. So one of the reasons I love my business when I work with individuals and families for the most part of the investor side is you get to meet all these super interesting people, right? And you get to meet other managers and see other deals. And it's just a fascinating way to live life. What is the most interesting deal that you've seen come across the platform? That is hard to say. We, we got plenty, but there is this one that stayed in my heart. So not because it's a specifically exotic one. It's relatively exotic, but we, we see exotic stuff every day, right? But we were at the very beginning and we had like, probably has 20 opportunities thus far. And it was just Columbia uh, and another couple of schools. And, you know, it's not that you have 9,000 opportunities as of today and like currently live and, and 50,000 members, you probably have like just a few hundred members. So some some guy comes forward and says, hey, my family is um, trying to do rare earth uh, mining in Tanzania. Um, and they're raising 10 million for that. And, and I'm looking at and the opportunity that he sent across and I was like, should we even publish it? You know, it's it's something so far away from the geography everyone else is in and, you know, rare earth mining. I, I don't even know what rare earths are at the time, right? Didn't know. And I'm like, okay, let's give it a try. And I put it out and within a day, a person connects and the day after another person connects, which, you know, would be totally normal today, actually would be much less than the average member can expect, but at the time was quite exciting because of the smaller scale of the network. And uh, the second person comes back three days later saying, you know, good conversation, but they already closed with the first one. And we're like, well, how, how did that happen, right? And it turned out, you know, the rare earths they were working on, I didn't know, but were useful for pharmaceutical screening. And these were two pharmaceutical companies that were dying to find um, those rare earths and they were willing to invest in the supply chain. And the reason why that deal kind of really stayed in my heart is because Every founder has the impression that they need to know everything. And uh, at the end of the day, their knowledge is what will drive things forward. And, and that really demonstrated that I really knew nothing and, and the network took care of itself. And, and that was really a mind-blowing moment for me at the very beginning. And so that deal stayed uh, stayed with me. But, you know, we, we get that kind of deals and even way more exotic ones on a daily basis now. It's it's really amazing when you open the platform and you just start scrolling through, you, you'll find things that are from the most common like real estate in New York or whatever to, I don't know, flying cars and any new technology. And the other very cool thing about the platform, we, we get to see trends maybe six months in advance. They are in the newspapers. Uh, we saw crypto coming six months before it was a thing. We saw cannabis coming six months before it was a thing. We, we saw all the kind of bio ventures coming like six months before they were a thing. And, you know, even like things that are 
um, still kind of cutting edge or we're cutting edge like six months ago, like treatment for PTSD with LSD and stuff, which are very cutting edge. And, you know, we, we saw that before it was a thing in the market. So it's it's always really inspiring to look at the opportunities and look at them on an aggregated basis because you get to see where the market is going and it's very fascinating. And so same question, but on the member side, is there a story where you've your platform and, and these relationships, the network have had a huge impact on an individual member? So we got plenty. We we get people that come to us and tell us we close this deal and close that deal. And sometimes this deal are big, like the, the 100 million deal or the 500 million deal or the billion deal. But I'm going to tell you the, the, the story of like probably one of the smallest deal that I've ever heard about because it was an amazing story. So we have this partnership with uh, an Italian bank in Tesla San Paolo. They brought in some of their clients, the CEOs. And we have this partnership with BCI, which is a bank from Chile. And they bring in a bunch of their members and ultra net worth. And so, you know, two companies that were really kind of old-fashioned companies, small companies, really SMEs, trying to find commercial partners, not even M&A or, or finance, which, you know, is a lot of what we do. But basically, we saw this um, fish company in, in Chile starting to import blue fish from Sicily in Italy from uh, this uh, Sicilian company. And, you know, as a story, it's like, okay, why are you telling me about this fish import? Well, the thing is, the two CEOs started talking, and they really found a lot in common in terms of the family background and values. And they organized a trip for uh, the Chilean family to go and visit the Italian Sicilian family. And they get their grandparents that were the founders of the business to sit at a table and eat together. And, you know, when, when you see, like, grandpas that are getting to meet on a dinner to do business together due to their kind of children and grandchildren meeting on a platform, that is something that stays in your heart. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And so along those lines, it, it's become de rigueur to talk about double bottom line businesses, impact investing, et cetera. How do you think about your platform and company enabling social change? And what advice would you give to people who want to do well and do good in business? So I really believe that every company starts with uh, a change you want to make in the world. And depending on the change you want to make, then your business is going to have or not going to have a double bottom line. Uh, because at the end of the day, everyone can like argue that, oh, my business is going to have a, a, a double bottom line impact, do well and do good. You know, there is a lot of kind of praising and, and slang about it. And, and I've seen people doing coal mining saying, our coal mines are like 5% more efficient. We have like this double bottom line and arguing for that, right? But at the end of the day, when you start a business, you really want to make a change in the world. And whether that change is a change that will drive that impact will ultimately determine 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, whether you're going to have an impact. The other way is you're a next generation, you're coming into a business that maybe was not born that way, but you really want and can make a change and, and, and that can really drive a difference. These to me are the two moments that you can really drive the, the impact the day you come in or the day you start. Because the, the impact is not just driven by your action, it's driven by your intention. And if they're not there in the first place and you're not willing to make economic sacrifice, you're not willing to really stand behind it, it's not going to happen. And yes, there will be 
kind of the impact on the double bottom line, the do well and the good, but you have to go through some tough choice sometimes to make sure that you can do good and eventually that will do well for you. That's that's the way we look at it. You can get both, but if you never have to make a tough decision because of it, you know, is it really going to be there? Right. And that's the difference between just paying lip service to it and actually having it be part of your company culture, right? Which I think, especially within the ESG space, there's a lot of companies that are navigating oh, yeah. this right now. So I want yeah, to get in. You, you, you can take UN goals and there are so many goals and there are so wide that, you know, I bet every company in the world, even like the one that are contributing like 10% of global pollution in like 10 companies, there, there will be some of the goals they can say, check mark, check mark, check mark. So you can always argue, every company can argue, yeah, we're doing also something good. But at the end of the day is why do you exist as a company? And as a CEO, as someone that is driving this business, as a major shareholder, as someone that has the ultimate say on this business, as a board member, as someone that's really steering the business, why are you there? What, what is the purpose that you have? And to me, that is what is going to drive your willingness to make that decision, but more of an impact or less of an impact. Because no one has zero impact or an only negative impact. The one is 100% positive impact. But being 95% positive or 5% positive is what makes the whole difference. Absolutely. So before we get into the growth of the company, I've got to ask, how did you convince these big, highly regulated bureaucratic organizations, like some of these banks, wirehouses that you mentioned, how did you forge these partnerships? So the, the first one, I had to build that relationship myself, and it was really hard. You know, I, I was very young at the time and uh, very enthusiastic. So we got some of them to really believe in the project. But what we did quite shortly after we, we started getting the first banks and the first partner on board, we, we created this network of incredibly senior executives. Each one of them could easily be my mentor, and we have like 40, 50 of them by country. And these people are the one going out and speaking with the institution, not kind of making this contact for the first time, but probably because they know them um, since like probably 15, 20 years and they know the people at the helm. We had uh, in, in Brazil, the person representing us that was the former CEO of uh, uh, Lloyd's. Uh, the person representing us in uh, Vietnam was the former CEO of uh, Western Union for APAC. We, we had uh, at a certain point in, in, in France representing us, the former CEO of MasterCard in France. The, the person working with us in Benelux was like 20 years part of, partner at McKinsey and also a uh, member in the uh, European um, Union Committee for Bank Regulation Transparency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have like this group of 40, 50 individuals that are incredibly senior incredibly accomplished in their own field that really see what we are trying to do. And they think, okay, all the network we've built, all the access we have, we can put it at the service of something that is trying to make a positive change in the world. We want to be part of this. We want to bring the institution in our country into the network. It's a testament to your grit and, and tenaciousness because it's not easy, even with that cohort of people that you mentioned. So kudos to you. And let's talk about moving forward. Is there an end game? Is there a number of people that you want on the platform? Where do you see things developing now? Yeah, we will not stop until every reliable decision maker on this planet will be part of this platform. Because our purpose really to create a place where there is equal access to business opportunities. We want to create a place where if you're a reliable, legitimate, honest decision maker, you're not, you're not going to wake up in the morning thinking I have a great idea, but not going to be able to make it happen because you can't find the right counterpart or it takes too long or there is too much friction. We will only stop when we will be able to eliminate um, the kind of lack of counterpart from business failure. 
you know, the, the way people run a business today is they have a beautiful idea and they start a business or maybe their business is already big, but they always need that kind of serendipitous encounter once or twice a day, a week, a month, a year to really drive their business forward. And, you know, serendipity by, by definition is like this fortuitous encounter that is by chance and is going to make a big difference for you. We want to take serendipity and, and take out the chance element. We want to kind of have serendipity on demand. And that's what we're trying to do. And we're not going to stop until we get there. It's incredible. Well, good luck to you. I'll be watching. And like I said, through YPO, I think we have a relationship there. So I look forward to engaging and, and hopefully being part of this journey that you're on. Um, of course. In, in YPO, for instance, it's called YPO Transaction Hub. As a YPO member, you can just go and join. Um, YPO is covering the fees for the entire community. So go and enjoy We'll be happy to have you on the platform as soon as you get access to the YPO website. I'm doing it right now. Awesome. Well, Brian, what is the best way for people, if they're listening, they're interested in learning more about you and the Opportunity Network, how can they get connected? Sure. So the easiest way to learn about the company is opportunitynetwork.com. So it's simple as possible website, opportunitynetwork.com. And there is a lot of information about us. There is a page of testimonial slash testimonials that basically shows a bunch of success stories, people that were kind enough that after closing a deal, they wanted to put their face and name to it and, and really tell us the story. And also there is a way to apply so that you can go through uh, the verification of the bank or the verification of one of our partners to, to be able to join the platform and get access to basically the collective network of all the institutions we work with. And if anyone wants to be in touch with me directly, you know, our emails are very easy. It's first name, so Brian at opportunitynetwork.com. Incredible. Well, Brian, thank you so much so much for the time. I really appreciate it. I look forward to watching your growth and connecting with you through this YPO, YPO relationship you have and really appreciate you making the time to come on. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 